it's always easy to just focus on the growth or the things that are doing really well. And it's easy to get sloppy and lazy sometimes if you're not having your feet held to the fire by certain kinds of metrics. So, so to me, it, it forces discipline that you may not have had. and welcome back to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president of Blast Media. And as always, I will be both your host and bartender. Well, we have a special edition of SaaS Half Full today. We have a fireside chat edition. We had two people that are in the investment world come into our office at Blast Media for our Blast Media kickoff week to talk to us about all things SaaS investment and how the landscape is changing right now with their current recession. So I welcome David Kerr, who is the Managing Director of Allos Ventures, and Sarah Omahundro, who is a principal at Elevate Ventures. So two investors who were kind enough to share their time with us, uh, talk to us about how they're advising their portfolio companies, their take on marketing, should you increase or reduce spends during the recession, and overall what they're seeing in terms of the investment trends today and how that was different from two years ago. So grab a drink and listen as I share an in-person conversation via fireside chat with David and Sarah. Our clients are going through a lot of challenges right now, uh, some of them. Some, on the other hand, are really flourishing for different reasons than others and who tend to thrive during an economic downturn. We have legacy clients who were very high growth companies who are seeing some challenges. We have new clients who are highly profitable companies, albeit smaller companies. So why we have them here today is to provide just additional context around what's happening in the SaaS landscape currently as it relates to scaling companies, potential investment trends. We had Mike Fitzgerald from High Alpha in here sometime earlier this year. Uh, and it's really been a roller coaster since then. The last three years have proven to be uh, volatile and they change quickly. So we have David and Sarah here today to provide some current context into what's happening in the SaaS landscape. So without further ado, David and Sarah, would you give us an introduction of yourselves? Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm Sarah Mahundra. I'm a principal at Elevate Ventures. I joined Elevate back in February, so I've been there almost a year now. And my role is uh, managing our investment process from when a company comes in to pitch to us through due diligence, evaluating their investment merits, and ultimately deciding whether or not we should make a commitment. Uh, nice to see everybody. My name is David Kerr. Uh, I'm managing director at Alice Ventures here in town. Just briefly, my background, last 25-ish years, I've been an operator. So I've been a CEO, a COO, or a GM of a variety of different companies, three-person startups, venture-backed, all the way to Groupon, and kind of everything in between over those years. Most recently, I was CEO of a company called Octave here in town. We sold to a large uh, investor, uh, Insight Venture Partners, which is one of the largest private equity slash venture firms in the world, and their portfolio company, Conga, back in 2018. And that's when I joined Allos. Uh, Allos, small Midwestern fund. We're in our fourth fund. We've got about 200 million under management and we invest in early stage. So seed through series A, such that it's I consider like series A Midwest series A's. Like we write checks of 2 million on five to $10 million investments versus like the Adam Newman's that do a series A that's like 300 million on a PowerPoint kind of thing. 
And we first met David at Octave. He was a client. And so that's where our relationship with David began. And Sarah, size of companies, deal size for Elevate. What does that look like? Yeah, so we're really stage size agnostic within the world of startups. We'll do everything from pre-seed companies valued at just a few million dollars all the way through Series B, later stage companies valued at $100 million uh, plus. So it really uh, varies quite a bit. And do you ever work together and go on deals together? All the time. (laughs) All right. Uh, What are some local companies that you have worked together on deals? Most recently, Traction Ag. Um, That's an exciting one. Um, They're a uh, SaaS platform for managing farm accounting and other farm management services. Yeah. Sarah and Elevate, if you don't know, they're like the most prolific investor in all of Indiana. I mean, basically, if there's a company that's going to be venture back, they're part of it. I think you guys did 90 plus deals last year. Yeah. If you uh, count all of the grants and like everything we do, it was um, well over a hundred. So yeah, we, we have 367 active portfolio companies um, and we've done investments in 507 companies in Indiana since our inception back in 2011. And we'll do just to give you kind of size and scale, we'll do like five, maybe six a year and our (laughs) portfolio in its entirety is maybe 40, something like that. Awesome. So if you can think of about the last two years, it's been pretty intense in some regards. So I'm talking not 2020, but we're looking at 2021 to 2022 and kind of where we are today. How would you describe the last two years as it relates to your world? So very (laughs) manic and exciting in 2021. So in our world, every year you do valuations and your valuations are just paper valuations. You invest at a certain valuation in a company. And then every year you look at it and you do markups or you do markdowns. And it's based on either most recent financing or based on lots of times we'll mark to mark with publicly traded companies. So if you look at publicly traded SaaS companies in 21, they were on average trading at about 15X, their top line multiple. Now it's below 5X, it's about four. So 21 was this kind of manic, everybody was getting markups and every VC was like feeling great and it was a great time to go raise money. And then 2022 was just, you know, everybody, you had the haves and the have nots. You had companies that had a really difficult time raising money and you just had a very few that were kind of the highest performing that could raise money and were still getting higher valuations. But 2022 was, you realized you were human, again, just kind of lucky in the 2021. And Sarah, thinking about the end of last year and and the beginning of this year, many founders and leaders found themselves in in maybe the first economic downturn of their business lives, if you will. How did this impact Elevate strategy and portfolio companies? I mean, at the end of the day, I think the fundamentals of investing don't change. But as we're thinking about investing in these companies, you know, we're advising them to focus on their runway. So if they're looking to raise, really think about having enough capital to get them through up to 24 months. Similarly, burn efficiency, thinking through if or where they may need to make cuts, potentially revising projections around revenue and headcount. But ultimately, you know, when it comes to investing, a good a good company is is a good company. Yeah, and I, I would just real quick, I'd add to that that you go through these cycles. So it was growth at all costs back in kind of 
well, 19, 20, 20, 21. So it was just, hey, here's this money we've put in front of you. Add sales, add PR, add marketing, all these kinds of things. And then with the downturn, the macroeconomic downturn, it's been much more towards cash runway. And so it's all burn efficiency, which means how much cash you're burning each month based on what your growth is and extend that runway from what may have been 12 months because you think you're just going to go raise money again to, hey, this could be the last money you ever raise to a 24-month runway or maybe even a 36-month runway. Uh, what advice are you giving to your portfolio companies today that differs from advice you're giving two years ago? You know, similarly, just focusing on cash runway and burn efficiency, like David talked about, um, validating their product market fit, getting that customer feedback and making sure their solution is really need to have, not nice to have, because that'll help them kind of retain customers through the downturn. I want to unpack the validating product market fit a bit more. How do you go about doing that? Or if you're revalidating it, I guess. Just actively sourcing feedback from customers is huge recognizing which segments of customers have been uh, more successful than others in terms of sales and retention and really listening to those customers to understand why that's the case. Have there been situations where you have found that they need to narrow that target customer based on feedback? Absolutely. I think a lot of early stage companies try to start out going after all these different customer groups. You know, they want to attack as big of a market as possible, but really it's uh, better if they focus on one or two very specific segments that they can really gain market share in and then expand from there. And also those are our favorite clients. It's a bit counterintuitive, but if we have a client who literally can sell, sell their solution to anyone, that's harder for us to do. It's easier for us to do PR when we understand specifically that buyer and the value it brings to that individual buyer. So Attraction Ag, for example, we understand exactly who we're looking to influence in their sphere where we represent Formstack. They have a very broad audience. Their platform does a lot of things for a lot of different people. And while we still have success with them, it is more difficult to find exactly how we're going to educate their prospects in what segment. So we love those specifics like the traction eggs of the world. Did you have something to add there? Yeah, I think one of the other things, so, so early stage in that, that where you're finding product market fit is really trying to validate what's going to be scalable. It's basically an experiment. You're giving people money and they're experimenting for a year or two, it's essentially. Um, and let's take an example here in town. We were not an investor, but... Um, just as an outside observer, like Cluster Truck did extraordinarily well in town here. And a lot of it was Chris Baggett, exact target founder, all these things was the founder of it and had all these folks that he knew in town. And so it, it got this immediate kind of viral word of mouth kind of growth. He goes to other markets and the name Chris Baggett means nothing there. And there were a lot more challenges to try to, to make that happen. And so they, they ran into a lot of different obstacles there. And so what we try, like we just invested in a company and they had all these name brand, Johnson & Johnson, Sanofi, Procter & Gamble, Blue Diamond, these really early stage company. And we discovered the founder really had long-term relationships with these folks. And so we're trying to validate, will it go beyond that, that founder's relationships and can it really expand beyond that into a, a really scalable type of growth trajectory? How do you go about doing that? 
Um, well, when you're doing your due diligence, so usually when you're doing due diligence and again, I'll kind of give examples of where like FTX, everybody knows FTX, right? And all these people put lots of money in. I won't throw Sarah in this, but most VCs are all lemmings. Like we all like just, oh, like super smart person, famous person invested, like that must be good. But you have to remember to, to do the discipline of the due diligence. And so to that example, it would be not only talking to those existing customers, but going out into the market and talking to prospective customers and saying, hey, what do you think this particular company that I was mentioning with these big name brand logos they're in this it's decision intelligence platform. And so we went out to other large companies and Gartner's looking at this decision intelligence space now. And we'll just ask them, you know, what do you think of this? Is this nice to have? Is it need to have? How would you think about this type mm -hmm. of solution? Mm -hmm. so. so there aren't all negatives when it comes to a recession as it relates to the SaaS industry. There are many SaaS businesses who tend to do quite well in an economic downturn. And there are certainly some positives. What positives do you see come out of a time like we are in right now? Well, I think for one thing, for existing SaaS businesses, it becomes a lot easier to acquire great tech talent in the changing economic and job environment. I think another positive change we see come out of environments like this is that uh, people have to be a lot more resourceful. And so that presents new problems and solutions and companies have to pivot. And ultimately, I think we get to a place where we have more um, efficient and profitable uh, solutions and products. Yeah. And to me, it's kind of the never waste a good crisis. It's always easy to just focus on the growth or the things that are doing really well. And it's easy to get sloppy and lazy sometimes if you're not having your feet held to the fire by certain kinds of metrics. So so to me, it it forces discipline that you may not have had. And so I think that gets you back to your fundamentals of, of kind of growth and how you're thinking about the business. For sure. And you both had mentioned the term burn efficiency and something that you're looking for now. What other qualities are you looking for today uh, in companies when you're looking to potentially invest? There's so many, I think first, you know, starting with the team, are they coachable? Do they have prior startup experience or do they at least have advisors with uh, relevant experience thinking about the go-to-market strategy? Is it focused? Like we talked about the terms of the deal are very important. And then, you know, looking at metrics, of course, burn efficiency is an important one, but of course it varies by company as well as understanding their, their growth rate and other, you know, classic SaaS metrics. I'm going to just, cause we keep, there's always every business has got vernacular. So like burn efficiency would be okay. If the business is going to, so if it's a two, two times burn efficiency, essentially, if the business is going to grow $5 million and you have a two times burn efficiency, is it going to take you $10 million to grow $5 million kind of thing? Ideally you're less than one-to-one. -one. But lots of companies might be three to one, two to one. And so you're trying to get down to that one to one. I would echo everything Sarah said. For At our stage, it's the people and it's really the founder or okay. founders. We ideally like to have two co-founders. We like them to have lived the problem before, experienced the problem in some way. You don't always get that. In an ideal world, it's a second time founder because then they have scar tissue from all the mistakes they made the first time or successes. But there's all kinds of like this particular decision intelligence company. It's a father and son co-founding team with another technical founder. 
There's all kinds of weird dynamics around father and son, maybe. I've invested in husband and wife before. Obviously, there could be issues there. I've invested in twins. So there's always, like, you look at the whole human dynamic, and then the next thing for us is product market fit, and then the overall size of the market. Yeah. So is this, could this become a $100 million company kind of thing? So you mentioned strong founders. I had an interesting conversation with someone who leads an M&A advisory, and he was talking about basically the subjectivity of all deals, is you put 10 deals in front of people, you're going to have three who hate it, three who love it, and you'll be find the one that really has finds the value in it. But one of the things we talked about was a strong founder brand and how even that is polarizing. How do you feel about a really strong founder brand when you're looking at a startup? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I um, I think it can be you know good and bad depending mm-hmm. on what that brand is and how that fits with the company. I think um, the biggest thing I want to see in a founder, even from a, like a brand perspective, is that they're coachable and open to feedback. I think that's probably the main quality we look for outside of you know checking the boxes around experience things like that. Uh, what's the downside of a strong founder brand? Um, I think the the downside is that if you create a brand of you know not being coachable or that is negative, it's very hard to change that. At Elevate, we're focused on investing in Indiana companies, so it's a very small world. And um, if you create the <laughs> the wrong brand, it's hard to distance yourself from that. How are you defining a founder brand? Uh, somebody who is vocal. So externally, they're vocal on LinkedIn. They speak at a lot of conferences. They are the brand. So when people think of insert brand, they think of this founder. That's interesting. I, I don't necessarily think about that. Okay. I mean, I think about different archetypes. Mm-hmm. Usually they're coming from a finance background or a sales background or an engineering background or something like that. And then the archetype is they're coachable with a lot of humility. They're confident, but not cocky and arrogant. I usually think about those personality traits as opposed to when we're investing at our stage, as opposed to, hey, they've got a brand, like they're known as the whatever expert in this space. To me, that's secondary. But then to what you all do, then I do think about once we get into it and if they're the right kind of archetype and they are extroverted, can you turn them into a thought leader in the space? Because oftentimes there's people that maybe hit their ceiling on being a manager and a leader, but they're a great spokesperson. So do they have the humility to put somebody else in place to run the business day to day and they will go be the evangelist for the business or whatever. And that's oftentimes where we plug in. We have founders who are still active in the business, but they have a C-suite and we're potentially elevating the founder and or other members of the C-suite. I had just mentioned how sort of a good deal or good company can be subjective. What happens when you and your partners disagree? Um, Well, we disagree all the time. (laughs) So our investment committee meets weekly and that's where we discuss moving deals into full due diligence or whether or not to make an investment commitment. It's very informal, very open, very collegial. If there are specific concerns, we might go out and like gather additional information from the company, do some extra due diligence. If there's not strong conviction across the board, then maybe we'll lower the investment size a little bit, uh, things like that. But at the end of the day, like through these um, very collegial and healthy debate conversations, 
ultimately we're almost always able to get to a unanimous decision. Well, you guys have a pretty healthy rubric as well, don't you? Kind of how you score. Yeah, there's um, there's a process. You know, by the time something gets to investment committee for an investment decision, we've looked at it and discussed it so many times that it shouldn't be, you know, anything new. Um, so there are plenty of points throughout the process, initial vetting with our EIRs, when the company comes into pitch and is evaluated afterwards, where they're scored and evaluated by different team members. And at any point they could receive a no answer from us then. So if they make it to the end of the process, usually we all have a pretty good understanding of that company. Okay. David, what about it, Alice? So there's a whole concept in venture around conviction and what your level of conviction is about the founder and the company and the space and all these things. So we um, imbibe that. Ours usually is one of the managing partners is kind of leading the deal. So, you know, you'll see a whole, you know, you might in the funnel, you might look at a thousand deals a year, kind of at the associate level or whatever. And then that gets narrowed down. And then maybe there's 60 deals that really you take a lot of time with, and then you invest in five or six deals. But as it's going through that funnel, I'm getting excited about it, or one of my partners is getting excited about it. And so they take it and kind of lead the due diligence. And then we go through the same kind of process. But ultimately, at the end, it's kind of like, okay, you got four or five, six slots. Do we really like, do you want to, do you have the conviction? Are you going to pound the table with two fists? This whole kind of thing and move forward with it. Okay. Um, so usually, Usually there's unanimity or there's um, acquiescence. Really. Somebody rolls All over. Right. You're Got really, it. Okay. you're really, you're pounding the table. This is your slot. Go for it. Right. Love it. All right. I'm going to switch gears and talk more about PR marketing side of the house. Uh, TechCrunch came out with an article that basically, well, cited a report that stated VCs recommend their portfolio companies mid last year that they cut revenue generating functions, both people and spend. And what the report stated was at the end of last year, those companies were no more profitable than the companies who kept spending. So want to hear your take. Yeah, we've not made that particular recommendation. Ours would be around cash runway and cash management and also being really aware of kind of where the funding markets are and where I said something a little while ago about the haves and the have nots. Like if you are a top performing company and at the stage we're investing in and you're, let's say a two or three or $4 million company and you're doubling every year or more than that, and you've got this good burn efficiency and so forth, you're still going to be able to raise and you're figuring out how to scale and there's repeatability. So we wouldn't, we would say be mindful of your runway, but keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. I would say, what we see more of is this founder archetype. I'm an engineer. I'm going to protect product and engineering, and I'm going to cut this go-to-market team is worthless. Like they didn't do what they're supposed to do. And we're like, well, have a balanced approach here. There's probably a measured approach to kind of look across the organization and maybe you don't need 26 engineers. Maybe you could do this with 18 and sure. Maybe you don't need eight sellers. Maybe it's six. I mean, so Ultimately, they're the management and we can't, we can only give advice as even as board members, we can approve budgets and so forth. So we give that kind of guidance as opposed sure. to, hey, slash your marketing budget. Yeah, there is a stark difference in even how they view 
not even marketing, but brand specifically, right? The more of that top of the funnel isn't that all just swag and bullshit. There is a difference in those types of founders that we see as well of how they think about and approach marketing and specifically PR. Uh, Sarah, what's your take on knee-jerk reactions, cutting spend on marketing? Yeah, I would echo um, David's comments and I'll just add it. It depends on the company. Companies that maybe got ahead of themselves, hired too quickly, yeah, they may need to cut. Companies that were more conservative in their growth may not need to make as many cuts. Um, it also kind of depends on their go-to-market strategy too. So companies with a land and expand approach that are looking to increase revenue from existing company customers, maybe they don't need to spend quite as much on marketing and going after new customers. But for some companies, that's not the case. So it really is a case-by-case basis. And when it comes to PR, why does PR get a bad rap? Well, before, where does it get a bad rap? That's a pretty general Founders. And specifically technical founders. Well, I think technical founders truly believe that the product is going to sell itself. Mm -hmm. Like everybody's going to be like, oh my God, this is the greatest product ever. And at least so far in my career, I've never come across the greatest product ever. It's, it's just, they're all broken. They all have issues. They all need, you know, updating all these things. Um, as you know, I'm a fan of PR. You are. I appreciate um, it. But I think, and the things I like that you all do, it, it's got to be metrics driven. Like I've always loved the share of voice reports. Like I love to see, oh, Octaves, this little tiny shit company, and here's Conga or DocuSign or whatever. Can we like chip away and can we move from, you know, 3% to 6%? Because because ultimately to me, that matters in the kind of building the funnel. So I, and that's just one example. I know there's other ways in terms of placements and so forth, but to me, you've got to demonstrate via metrics, how what you're doing is truly adding value. And ultimately it's going to be, you know, somewhere at that top of funnel, it's really difficult to have that attribution because you always have the challenge between sure. sales and marketing and sales is always like, marketing is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And marketing is like, well, sales doesn't take our leads and do the right thing with them. But you guys have got to play in that game. I think the other challenge is, and this, this is just based on the size of our companies, and I get it. You guys like to do programmatic things over an arc of, you know, of time that takes time, money, energy, and so forth. And I'm, I fall in the same bucket. We always want to like, let's do that first project. And yeah. you guys are like, oh, like, <laughs> I don't want to just do that cheap ass project. Like I want to do, but we know, do because we I, love you. I, I want to, I know you do, you guys always, but, but no, I'm just trying to be real here. But like, but I think that's what you run into is I think you've got to show demonstrated value via metrics on why does this longer term campaign work? You know, I don't know, but like, are there things that kind of scale and flex up and flex down? Cause I don't think it's always one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like when I, and I, I certainly don't equate you guys to like an outbound uh, SDR team, but oftentimes you can scale those things mm -hmm. up and down based on need or seasonality mm -hmm. and these kinds of things. So anyway, that was a long rambling answer, but I'm, I'm a huge PR fan. Um, but I think as you guys position, you, you got to be metrics driven and how do you fill the pipeline? 
And another reason we enjoy David is because he said he likes to see a share voice increase from three to 6%, not three to 65%. Very realistic. Uh, Sarah, when do you know a portfolio company is ready for PR? Um, it's hard to say. It really um, depends. I think, you know, if the founder has kind of started building that brand on their own, then the PR company can really help them expand and grow that brand and refine it. If a founder hasn't been thinking about that, then it's probably not the right time yet. And I think it also helps once the company has, you know, gotten off the ground, gained a little traction, PR can help from a marketing perspective too. So I think it you want the company to be just a little more mm -hmm. mature than one that's still like developing its initial product. We do appreciate that because there are times where we'll be working with a smaller company, first time founder. And they're like, we want to be, I want to be on CNBC. I'm like, bro, you've not even been on a podcast. Yeah. Like we don't have anything to point yeah. back to. You have no platform. You don't contribute to LinkedIn. So you do have to build some sort of foundation before you can start doing that. So I can appreciate that. Do you have any interesting or funny PR stories from your career that you can share? Not really. I think the only thing that comes to mind recently is I um, was getting data ready for a report that a news outlet is doing and spent hours and hours very late at night manually entering in all of our deal data from 2022 only to find out after the fact that they were just looking for like the handful of largest deals. So I think <laughs> making sure you understand what uh, the PR is getting at before you start compiling the data. Um, well, where else are you going with your questions? Because I've got, there was one question on that you haven't asked yet that I wanted to chat about. <laughs> I have one more. This is the one you're could really be, excited about. Tee it up. I can't wait. Here we go. David, are there any technologies that you're bullish about going into the new year? Thanks for asking. I'm Lindsay. happy to hear Thanks it. Thanks for asking. So I think it's opportunity and I think it's risk for you all in this room. And I and it's total hype cycle right now, but this whole generative AI thing, uh, I'm sure everybody here has gone out and looked at chat GPT. They've put something in there, whatever, written a poem or, you know, done their med school application. We just invested in a uh, generative AI company, which I'll probably put in touch with you guys out of Cincinnati. Like this stuff's unbelievably cool. It is so fucking cool uh, what it can do. But I also think in the world of content creation and what you're doing, you're going to have to stay ahead of it. You're going to mm -hmm. figure out how do we use this to our advantage and not be, I'd be really worried if I was like an SEM or SEO content creator. And that's all I did because I think for these kind of low value um, ad placements, and I'm not saying low value people at all. I'm just saying low value ad placements. Like this will, this will just replace all that. And so I think you've got to figure out how you harness it and use it to your advantage from a strategic perspective. And I, there's a ton of hype around it, but it's going to be creating hundreds of billion. Like these will be the next Googles that get figured out. Okay. Generative AI. What else? What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I was going to say AI more broadly, both generative and just being able to grab insights from giant data sets like healthcare data. Um, we've seen some exciting companies in that space. And I think kind of post 
crypto crash. AI is the new buzzword we're all hearing. And I think that's going to continue into 2023. Um, but I think kind of going off of what David said, you have to be able to separate the cool factor from the, is this a legitimate investable business factor? Um, it's really easy to get caught up in the hype around AI and it looks really cool in the demo, but um, you know, then you really have to understand and take the time. Like, what is the go-to-market here? What risks are involved? What's the market look like? Um, because it's it's very easy to get caught up in how exciting it is. Yeah. Are there any particular industries that you are seeing doing really well right now? We think about it by almost by like a vertical. So if it is ag tech, health tech, HR tech. You were such generalist, like all those that you just mentioned yeah. seem to be still like, there's still lots of opportunities right. in all those spaces. Right. I looked at two HR tech mm-hmm. deals in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. It was at the traction ag board meeting uh, mm-hmm. last week, like seeing lots of mm-hmm. things going on in that space. We can disagree on the politics of it, but the roughly $3 trillion of infrastructure bills and inflation reduction acts and all these things are putting lots of money into a variety of different industries. So mm-hmm. for like 120 water, lots of tailwinds right now. There's $55 billion in, I think, the infrastructure bill that's now unfunded mandates or will be funded. Uh, and that's great for that company. And there's a whole bunch of other companies mm-hmm. that will benefit, uh, clean tech companies that will benefit from that as well. Yeah, I think going forward to answer the question a little differently, if the economy continues to decline, the sectors that will do well will be the ones that are just generally less cyclical in nature. So if that company's customer base is not as prone to recessions, then hopefully they'll continue to see steady revenue growth. So like uh, David's example, 120 water or like Ziptility, you know, they're targeting a customer base of like utilities and water treatment plants um, that aren't going to be as susceptible to what the stock market and things like that are doing. Um, I think try to look for companies that have that aspect to them and maybe able to weather the storm a little better. Luck never hurts either. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think of like a little company here in town, Real Inc. I don't know if you guys ever, this little COVID pan, uh, pandemic comes along and they couldn't sell for, couldn't get a customer to save their life and suddenly go from zero to 4 million in revenue overnight, which right. is crazy. And had a great you know outcome with private equity buying, controlling interest and all that. So... Thanks again for joining me on SaaS Half Full. Hopefully you took a few things away from my conversation with David and Sarah today. I know our team at Blast Media certainly did. All of our clients are being impacted in different ways and this helped provide some context into the worlds in which we all live. So thanks again for joining me and until next time, bottoms up.